Welcome to Behind the Brands. So, you found us. <laughs> well done, you. Our little podcast all about the fashion industry. Let me just tell you about the host and the creator of this podcast. The guy's from the UK and his name is Warren Parker Mills. Warren's literally worked with some of the best people in the business and met some incredible brands along the way. Now he feels it's time to kind of do things a little differently. He'll be catching up with amazing storytellers from across the globe as they share some of those unwritten secrets that they've managed to figure out for themselves. From brands you'll recognize to small artisan creators that have mastered their craft. You'll hear about their collections, sales, and their ongoing quest for sustainability. So if you're an aspiring designer, an influencer, or just a massive fan of listening to fascinating conversation, stay right where you are. So you're here, episode two. Welcome. How are you doing? Are you good? Have you had a good week? Um, can I just say, actually, if you are nodding now, or even worse, talking back to the podcast, uh, it's official and you are a little bit weird, but that's absolutely fine. Weird folk are more than welcome to listen to this podcast, which is good. Um, so hopefully you are here to listen to a guy called Terry Fraser. Um, I spoke with Terry about a number of different things. We talked and reminisced really about the good old days, but in essence, we talked about his life growing up in the northeast um, as a lad and how he created his own brand which was called blood and glitter and how he took that to the market I, I really hope you enjoy the show i hope you enjoy the episode and get some worth out of everything that terry says and uh, without any further ado let's say hello to terry hey terry how are you Hi, Warren. I'm very well. Good man. Good man. Excellent. Good. Well, thanks for joining me today on uh, Behind the Brands podcast. Really appreciate it. Um, I just wanted to pick your brains if I could. Um, obviously, we've known each other for quite some time now. So, um, yeah, I just really wanted to find out a little bit about what you're up to now. And we can talk about your career and what how we've obviously worked together in the past. Um, and just give the listeners really a bit of an insight to to get into the industry more so than anything else. So, so you're in Cheltenham in the UK now. So how long Correct. have you been there, Terry? Have you been there a while now? Or not? I've been here since um, July 2013. Wow. Okay. Okay. Cool. And you enjoying it? Because obviously you're you're originally from the northeast, right? Yeah. Well, it's a it's a nice pleasant place to live. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, listen. Um, Let's let's go back actually to those northeastern days, and let's talk a little bit about you as a a kid, as a youngster, um, because I just think it's kind of nice just to talk to people and get an insight to their upbringing, what brought them into the industry, were there any were there any signs that you wanted to try and get into the fashion industry back in the day? So, what was it like growing up in the northeast as a kid? Um, well, I enjoyed it very much. I mean, I by the age of nine, I was living on the coast. It was it was great. Um, I guess I was quite a shy kid, although you knowing me for a, you might not <laughs> think that. Um, I love music, uh, what are now yeah. called graphic novels, which at the time I would probably called comics. Um, and I guess I discovered a love of jeans very early in my in my life. Yeah. So, I mean, was there was there any aspirations? Did you did you always know you wanted to be in the industry, or was that something that's just kind of evolved? How did, how did how, what happened? Um, no, I actually wanted to be a chef, believe it or not. But um, okay, that didn't quite work out, and um, it was actually my 
my mother that that suggested that I should go into the clothing industry because that's where I was spending all my money. Um, I'd I'd wanted a pair of Levi 501s and my mother refused to pay the price at the time and said I had to earn my own money. So I took a, a paper round morning, evening and Sundays and then, <laughs> and earned the money to, to buy my first pair of Levi shrink to fit 501s. Wow. How much were they? Do you remember? I think they were about 69 and 11 old money. <laughs> we're talking okay. about the... Okay. The sort of mid mid nineteen sixties, yeah. <laughs> cool, excellent. That's great. That's great. So yeah, so you got your first pair of Levi's, and what was it about those jeans that kind of um, made you not want to take them off very soon? That's a very good question. I don't know. I mean, obviously the quality, the denim. I mean, when I first got them, the denim was so stiff they actually stood up on their own, and I, I stood them at the bottom of the bed and and looked at them longingly for. Uh, <laughs> A night, uh, and then obviously I did the inevitable thing of uh, getting in the bath with them on, so that they uh, shrunk to fit me. But you know, just I mean, I, as I said, I grew up by the sea, so I used to actually go into the sea quite regularly. And salt water gives them a great fade when you're wearing them oh, naturally. Right. So um, you know, obviously you're not thinking about those things; you're just living and wearing them all. Uh, all the time yes i mean i had them so, so long that in the beginning of the 70s when flares were coming in my mother actually opened up the busted seam and put in triangles to to turn them into flares so oh, um brilliant you know yeah. they did have quite a long life so who taught you who told you about dunking them in the sea i mean i mean that's not the type of thing you do as a youngster really i mean was that just the look you wanted to try and achieve it, no it just like happened i mean I, I wasn't even thinking about that we just off you know we a lot of us, um, at the time, we were trying to get a fade. And there was two ways, you know, either using Domestos and putting them in a bath, which I didn't want to do because a friend of mine had done that with his Wranglers. And um, while wearing them, he noticed they were starting to tear. And we actually tore them off him. No, that's, that's, that's amazing. I mean, again, you know, being a youngster and... I suppose it's something to do with trying to be a little bit unique. Was is that what is that? Would you say that would be a good um, representation of it? Well, I think the beauty of all denim is the fact that they are unique. If you wear them from new, um, unwashed, they are unique because they become part of you, and all of the creases of and so on and fades—they're totally natural. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is amazing. And I know we're, we're kind of, we, I, I see you on social media and there's, there's quite a few groups there who literally are, they're just denim through and through these guys, you know, and they're, they're all talking, not just guys, but girls as well, but all talking about denim, all talking about Japanese washes and, and factories and from a technical point of view. And that's, that's still very prevalent in, in the, in the industry, isn't it? That, that love of denim and, and what it can do and why it's such a staple part of everybody's wardrobe. Absolutely. I mean, the difference between me and some of the people on the groups, though, is, is the fact that a lot of the groups are actually all about raw denim and then wearing your, wearing your jeans from raw or new. And, and that is very purist. I mean, I spent yeah. a lot of my life um, in laundries trying to emulate natural wear by artificial means. Obviously, those artificial means have got more and more sophisticated. And obviously, nowadays, a lot of it's done by, by uh, laser. But I mean, a lot, of, yeah. a lot of the things that I did were obviously by 
you know, using hand sa- hand sanding on on denim um, sure. prior to washing. So it's you know this I've lived through that whole sort of um, discovering that you could stone wash with pumice stones and and um, bleaching, which obviously had a very artificial effect. You know, I mean, it makes me yeah. cringe when I think about the things that uh, that we've lived through to do. I mean, one of the one of the funniest things was I actually met um, a gentleman that. Uh, he now actually works for a company called Landers, which is a, a top quality um, leather label supplier for jeans. And um, he's actually from the Northeast and he was living in Barcelona for quite a few years. And I met him there at, a den- at uh, Denim PV. And he yeah. reminded me that he used to run a laundry in Newcastle. And we went to him because we'd heard about this thing called stonewashing and we wanted our jeans um, that we'd made on uh, under our own label at the time when I was working for a northeastern retailer um, mm-hmm. to have this stonewash effect. What we didn't realise was that we were supposed to be using pumice stones that are very light and they and they have quite a a sort of uh, fantastic effect on denim. So we actually took stones from the beach, and of <laughs> course they um, when they went into the machine they actually smashed the glass in the. <laughs> <laughs> the machine and the water. Oh my goodness! Out, yeah. So you know, talk about trial and error. <laughs> that was an expensive work. It right? was, oh yes. And he reminded yeah. me of of that. That must have been, right. oh, I don't know, seventy nine, eighty, something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? You know how how techniques have developed over the years. You know, from from trial and error, probably more so than anything else. Absolutely. And, um, smash doors on washing machines so um obviously it was it was pretty it's, it's it is obvious that you were a, an absolute denim head right from an early age and that's kind of followed you through your career so can you talk a little bit terry about your career and and what you did once you'd kind of started getting into 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 working life um well i actually the first um job in the clothing industry was actually for alexandra the tailor so I actually okay. trained as a junior salesman, but that included also learning to measure because we were we used to make made to measure suits, and I actually I actually used to uh, measure people for suits. I learned about fabric, I learned about sizing, and so on. But there was this thing called fashion going on, and obviously being a young guy, I couldn't wait to get into it. And it just so happened yeah. that the guy that was responsible for giving me a lot of my training, the assistant manager in the first store that I ever worked in was um, he, he left to um, join a newly formed company. Um, and I actually followed him and joined him when they, they were just opening their second store. Um, and that was called the Mississippi Trading Company, which was, you okay. know, that, that was a thing at the time to, to uh, use American names on, on um, <laughs> jeans stores. And so that's that's how I sort of got into the first, you know. And in those days, we were we were stocking uh, unwashed Lee Levi and Wrangler because they were all obviously, uh, you know, there was no washing or stone washing at that time. The funny thing is, um, as I found out many years later, when I when I worked for the Peppy Group, was that Nitin Shah, the founder of Peppy Jeans, at the same time as I was a junior salesman in the Northeast. He was a, a trainee window dresser in London for the same company. 
Um, so it's a small world. Yeah, no, absolutely. I suppose also as well, having that retail experience was was good for you. You know, that you would look back in later years, you know, and, and get that understanding of what the consumer wants and then bridge that with what you as a as a brand owner and a creator can produce. Very much, very much. Yeah. Cool. All right. So you went to Pepe. Um, what were you doing? Obviously, I've known you for many, many years, and I know you've had lots of, of, of different roles in different companies. And you mentioned Superdry, which you were head of denim there, which is which was amazing. Um, but you also had your own brand. You had an, your own brand called Blood and Glitter. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, Blood and Glitter came about, um, I guess, I was working for a, a company and... and um, Controlling Interest was bought by Replay, who actually was one of my favorite brands in the whole world, certainly my favorite Italian brand. Um, But the Controlling Interest of 51% was was bought by Claudio Buzziol, who was the founder of Replay. Um, I found myself in an awkward position because I'd been been working for the company for almost six years. And... um, I found myself in the middle between the founder of the British company and the Italian one, and I decided that the time had come. I'd always had a burning desire, I guess, to um, create a denim brand, and I just decided yeah. that the time was right. Um, at the time, I it was very much raw denim. The Japanese brand Ivisu was very popular at the time, and the Dutch brand G-Star were had created raw and um, I decided that there was a point of difference to be had and that, you know, it was time to revive uh, jeans that looked like they were maybe five or 10 years old. And that in my mind was, uh, you know, we were going to have labeling that looked like it could have been created for a Savile Row suit, i.e. having what, what was a parody on the Royal crest, but we used two unicorns and, uh, I was looking for a name and my son who was studying design at Nottingham Trent uh, came home for the weekend and on, we were in his room sort of brainstorming and Mm -hmm. um, by chance I had, um, I bought him a book of photography on the glam rock period because he'd mentioned to me that um, he thought that I should include, if you like, in the brand, um, an aspect of my other love, which was rock and roll. And obviously my age group was very much sort of part of the glam rock scene. And um, I'd bought him this book with um, some fantastic shots by a photographer called Mick Rock of David Bowie. And the first edition of that book um, was called Blood and Glitter. The name was ah, not popular okay. with the, with the uh, publishers and they the, the following edition was actually renamed glam but i loved that name because i thought it summed up the feeling of the of the time so i actually checked to see if it could be registered and it could yeah and i registered it in the categories that applied to the clothing industry um and i suppose that that's we went from there we cre- we created our first den- our de- first collections with uh, including T-shirts with um, rock and roll slogans like rock and roll suicide, um, religiously unkind, street hassle. Um, these were some of the slogans that we used on our T-shirts. 
we actually yeah. hand painted uh, rock and roll suicide on the on the from one cuff of a gene curving round to the other curve curve of one one of our genes and a, and a butterfly gene. Um, wow. We had sweatshirts that were heavily washed, but also patched with denim. Um, and it just took off from there. On our first season, we, we got orders from Japan, which was, uh, I guess, one of the, still is one of the highlights of my period of that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it just, it just captured it. I mean, everybody's been rock and roll since then, you know, but at the time, uh, you know, 2000, um, and the first, the first product was delivered in, in uh, April 2001, we were ahead yeah. of the curve, you know. Yeah. Um, and what did what did what was the team looking like at the time then, Terry? Because you know it is it is quite a job putting the collection together. And how did you manage your time? Obviously, you've got you had amazing networking um, connections with with factories and suppliers and such forth. But what happened about all the other bits and pieces? Who who looked after the other areas? Well, what I decided was that sales side, I looked for some guys that. Um, I could find to be my agents. And I found a couple of guys that had a great showroom in Shoreditch in London. And uh, I took them on uh, on a commission-only basis to do, to do the selling. At that time, as I'm sure you remember, it was very popular to have a great showroom in London and everybody would flock to it if you had the right product. <laughs> These guys didn't have denim in their collection. They had many other things including menswear and they yeah. really wanted some denim so we just we managed to click i knew one of them from um when he was a buyer in in a a company and we we started with men's only on the first season mm. and they took that on uh, i wanted to include ladies jeans they were very much menswear by this time i'd actually found a lady um to be my PR agent in the UK, and she knew she knew two really cool ladies um, who had a showroom in the West End to do the ladies uh, okay. side of things, and um, their first orders uh, came from Selfridge. Wow! So okay. that was that was great. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's brilliant, and um, you know, putting that network in place is 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 a big problem for a lot of new brands, you know, working how to working out the, the mechanics of how they're going to sell it through. So you had agents that were working out of their showrooms. What about internationally? How did you, how did you kind of get the word out internationally? Did you use trade shows or? We, we started with, um, with to be confirmed in London in, which as you will remember was in Brick Lane and in the Truman Brewery. Yeah. Uh, which was a very cool sort of venue at the time. Um, we had spoken with the trade show that had moved to Berlin, Bread and Butter, um, but they were very dismissive at the time. It was like, oh, never heard of you. So I decided that I would go with a, a newly um, created trade show um, which was called Premium. Yes. And I uh, yeah. we started then. It was in an, a, a disused underground station uh, near Potsdamer Platz in Berlin. And that was, that was really cool. And um, by this time, I'd found a guy um, who was Danish. And he, he decided to take on um, Germany and, 
and the Scandinavian countries. So he became my agent there. Um, I had a, an old friend, um, Jan Halverstadt in, in Amsterdam, who um, I'd met when I was working for the Pepe Group. And he took us on as a distributor there. We found um, a guy in Australia to distribute us over there. Um, in Japan, we didn't initially want a distributor because they like to find you in, you know, themselves. And it was actually, I was told by one Japanese customer that it was kind of a negative if you had a distributor there in the early days because they right. they wanted to sort of find you and buy buy from you in in london or or in somewhere in europe you know but yeah, yeah we took we took part in in trade shows in copenhagen in uh paris in new york later yeah so with with regards to that then i mean you have an amazing network and it sounds to me as if you've not pulled in favors but you've certainly outreached to people and you've made that job of distribution a little bit easier shall we say than someone coming into the industry now what kind of challenges would you anticipate a new designer coming into the industry would have with regards to promoting their product well i think things have have moved on greatly because obviously nowadays you've got social media we didn't really you know even in that short time ago uh, I mean, we created the website um, at the time, but unless you use Google and paid them, I think it was um, 50p a hit or something like that at the time. Um, you know, if you put in blood and glitter, we were number one. If you put in jeans yeah. or T-shirts or whatever, God knows where we were. Um, yeah. You know, it w- would be superseded by every big name uh, and we'd be so- sort of somewhere down in the... 2000 3000 or something like that so you know i think nowadays um obviously you'd you'd definitely be launching online and you'd be you'd be finding all the the sort of ways of exposing yourself on on uh on social media that we didn't Mm. have you know so what i'm talking about in a way is almost it's already been superseded and it, it it sounds very old school you know i was an army of one and i would say that would still be the case you know i mean i um although i i called in favors as you said and and you know i was able to network because i'd had years in the industry but in terms of the actual um design content it was it was my son initially who was still studying and myself on the denim side um and then I would be the one that would travel to to work with factories and laundries to develop the collection. I would also be the one that was that was unpacking and and um, and picking orders and so on. And I was yeah. also doing my own invoicing until I brought somebody in. So, you know, in the <laughs> okay. beginning, I was doing I was an army of one. Um, but later, obviously, uh, my son Lee joined us, um, yeah. and he was both designing and helping running the warehouse and and so on so you know it was a it was i then i then i um actually headhunted the chap that from my accountant that was working on our thing was was a young guy in his early 20s who fell in love with the brand and he actually joined me and and virtually became my my general manager yeah um before branching out on his own to to become his own uh, accountancy and, and book 
keeper. Wow. So yeah, and amazing. obviously, so I, st- I still work with him today. Yeah. And what was your highlight moment with Blood and Glitter, would you say, Terry? Is there anything that stands out? Well, I think I think the first one was obviously um, our first Japanese customer, which was ships in, in Japan, in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, one of one of my great highlights was obviously producing a Bowie limited edi- edition T-shirt collection uh, with Mick Rock, um, obviously never expecting that... Um, David would then uh, leave us all uh, yeah. so soon afterwards. But, um, you know, that I wouldn't say that was a, a money-making thing. That was more like an act of love. But it was also yeah. a way of sort of doing below-the-line below the PR as well, I guess. How did you get that? How did that come about? Um, well, it's an interesting thing, but... When I when I first launched Blood and Glitter, I was approached by a guy called Adrian Cross, who I knew as a graphic designer, and he'd he'd actually worked on the hardcore brand with me uh, many years before, and he was actually working with Mick, and he was the one that was actually um, producing all the artwork um, for Mick's books, and he oh. he saw he learned about our brand. And rang me and said, "Look, I think there could be a synergy between you and Mick, and why don't you do it?" Now, having in my career um, worked on collections with Coca-Cola and the Disney Corporation, I didn't feel that I was equipped um, financially to take on paying royalties. So I actually put him off for five to seven years. And then when we were doing a trade show in London, I was actually approached by GQ, who were doing a photo shoot um, f- featuring all the new uh, British rock bands. And they thought that our, because we had a very rock and roll um, collection and we had a, a wonderful denim uh, military jacket with gold bread and gold buttons, which they wanted to use, among other things. And they said, yeah. look, you know, we're doing this, sh- this shoot and we're going to use a, a photographer called Mick Rock. Um, do you have you heard of them? And I said, yes, I have. Yeah. So I said, by all means, I'd love to provide you with clothes. And I just decided then that you know this is Kisma. I you know it's fate. I've got to meet yeah. this guy. So I actually rang Adrian, tracked Adrian down, and he uh, Mick actually lives in, on Staten Island, and he's right. been over there for like thirty odd years. So by coincidence, he was flying over um, to meet with Adrian that following week. And uh, Adrian said, well, I'll set up a meeting. So that's exactly what happened. I, I uh, met him in the Columbia Hotel in London, which he'd been using from the 1970s. Um, he did actually keep me waiting for an hour in the reception <laughs> at the time, but we'll, we'll not go there. But uh, he's a larger-than-life character. Um, he's got a huge personality. Yeah. Um, and he, when we met, he informed me that he had been watching our brand for an, about four years because a Scandinavian friend of of his had mentioned the fact that he'd seen blood and glitter jeans in Copenhagen and wondered if Mick had started uh, a, a denim brand. Yeah. Um, yeah. so he was waiting to see if I used any of his photographs so that he could sue me. <laughs> so I just, you know, I, I informed him that he should take it as a compliment that I'd used the name. Yeah. 
and yeah. that um, you know I would never do that because obviously yeah. he he'd taken photographs of my idols that I wow. greatly appreciated. So yeah. so basically, I I I informed him that what I'd like to do is yeah. use some of his images to make a T-shirt collection. And at first, yeah. he was very uh, unenthusiastic, shall we say, because he. He basically said, look, you know, I've made my living for more than 30 years out of these images and I don't want to cheapen them. Yeah. So I had explained that what, what I had in mind was a very limited edition that would be produced as if it was a vinyl box set, but with the T-shirt right. numbered and, and limited. And he, I persuaded him to let, to let me have one image that I could produce as a T-shirt and mock up so that he could see it. And this I did. I mean, it took 18 months to get there, to, to, to get everything done to his satisfactory. Uh, the night that he flew over to sign contracts with me, mm. um, we were sitting in the reception of, of the Columbia Hotel in London and a group of people walked in. Yeah. And one of the people spotted Mick and said to his friends, look, you just go ahead um, I'll follow on, but there's somebody I want to speak to. And he came over, said, Mick, and the guy, um, Mick was like, Terry, you've got to meet this guy. This is George. And I went, I know who this is. Right. And it turned out to be a guy called George Underwood, who's actually a very accomplished and famous artist. And he was David Bowie's best friend at school. Wow. And, uh, He's the guy that uh, had a fight with David over a girl and, and gave him the two colored eyes because he oh, punched him. No so <laughs> it was, it was I, I just, because I knew my history of David Bowie, if you like, I knew exactly who he was. So wow. anyway, we, we signed, George went off to his meeting and we went out to dinner. But when we came back to the hotel later, my designer and myself went into the, the lounge and um, George was in there and called me over and, and um, said, you've got to join us. So I found myself slightly surreally um, sitting with David Bowie's best friend from school, <laughs> listening to him tell me about the rock and roll years of, and mentioning Amazing. so many famous names. It was, uh, yeah. it was slightly surreal. That is incredible. And he was oh, a lovely guy. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. That's absolutely amazing story. That's fabulous. I mean, it is the industry for anyone that's listening to the podcast um, and, and due to kind of embark on this challenging, tough and arduous road at times, you know, it can be really difficult. But there are some moments like that, Terry, that you ju they just stick in your mind for, for life. You know, they're they're incredible. And um, that's brilliant. It's a brilliant story. Well done. Um, and can I just ask, Terry, about your thoughts about fast fashion? Um, I know things have changed, obviously, over the last few years, but I just really want to get your, your your handle on the way that the industry is looking today. And you're always about product and attention to detail and everything else. I'm not saying that other people are not. However, the industry has changed. What's your thoughts on, on that change? Well, I mean, fast fashion is definitely not where my interest lies. I mean, I, you know, I can understand it. Companies like Prime, Primark have been, I suppose, they're the prime example, if you'll forgive the pun, um, and they can turn something round in a, in a very short time and get it to market. 
I think things have got to change. I, th- I think we've got to go to slow fashion now. I think we've yeah. got to make closer to home. I would champion the use of UK manufacturing. I would champion recycling, using less water. Um, you know, it, we need we need to to become uh, much more conscious of our environment now. Yeah, and not yeah. just using it as a marketing tool. I mean, it's got to it's got to really happen. That's that's good. And um, who would you say has kind of influenced you over your career, Terry? Um, well, I guess I guess you can't rule out the greats in in uh, the denim world like Levi's and Lee um, and Wrangler, because obviously they were, in my opinion, the originators of denim, which is where my heart lies. But if you're talking about designers, um, I mean. <sighs> Somebody that's still going right now that I, I'm a big fan of is actually a guy called Nigel Caborn. I don't know whether you yeah. or your yeah, yeah, yeah. listeners have heard of him, but I mean, he's now reached the, the ripe old age of 70. He's, he's still going. He's, he's got a huge following in Japan. And uh, I first met him in 1973 in, in the Northeast when I was a young buyer. And... Um, he was just leaving university and he he just created a brand called Cricket. Um, you know, it's quite funny. I met him last year actually in his shop in Covent Garden. And, uh, you know, he's, he's still going and he's not lost any of the passion for product. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think, you know, people like him, Paul Smith, of course, and Vivian Westwood, they're, they're yeah. inspirations. But they're also staying aware of the environment as well and, and trying to change their change their um, collections to be smaller, tighter, um, and more environmentally friendly. What advice would you give anyone that's starting out in the industry that's trying to pull together a clothing brand? Well, the first thing I would say is that you have to see if you can come up with a unique USP or you know selling point I suppose like we did with rock and roll which as I said yeah. now, now you think oh rock and roll well everybody's done that but at the time was new but I think also um, on the practical side is you need a business plan and you need to stick to your budget because that's one thing that you know we didn't touch on but I mean we we had a very clear budget and business plan and we were in profit within the first 18 months um yeah as a company and that was because we were really tight um as i said i was an army of one at the moment uh, you know right at the beginning so i would mm. i would say that um product passion for product is obviously my first and point of doing it but in terms of the business side of things you've got to keep everything tight keep expenses down um, and then obviously you've got to you've got to decide what who your market is as well. You know who who am I selling this product to? Who's it aimed at? Yeah, and yeah. then work out a way. Which, as I say, I think now being long in the tooth and in the twilight of my career, as somebody once said to me recently, um, I would say that you know one thing I do believe in is young people with ideas, and it won't they won't be the same as mine. You know, 
and yeah. there's going to there's there's going to be people emerging, and they will know how to do it. I mean, I'm thinking of Gymshark, you know, yeah. which I'm sure yeah. you're very familiar with. I mean, yeah, it's not my field, you know. I I couldn't do what they're doing because it it's not where I you know what I'm about. But I think they have done an amazing thing, and from what I can gather, the the guy behind that had no background in the clothing industry whatsoever but he had a passion and he's gone about it. And I mean, so many of my former colleagues um, from Superdry have joined them and they love the company. So, yeah. you know, I think, I think it can be done, but you've just got to, you've got to know who your customer, you know, what, what do you want to do? Aim at them, have a very good business plan and a budget that you stick to. No, wise words. Really good. Um, that's great. That's absolutely brilliant. And you are right about Gymshark. I think Ben and the team there, not only have they got great product, they're, they're on it with regards to marketing the product. And I think the culture, I think that's really, from what I can gather, I don't know the business, but from what I can gather from an outsider looking in, I think culturally they're bang on. You know, certainly during the last couple of months, some of the in- initiatives they put together have just been outstanding. And I think that's probably set them a little bit away from the from their competitors. So. Uh, why do you do what you do, Terry? That's a question I'm asking everybody that comes on the podcast, really. Why do you still do what you do? Passion for product. Okay. Yeah, I thought you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's probably the best answer. And I won't even ask you to elaborate on it because I know exactly what you're about. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's great to hear. How can our customers contact with you, Terry? What's the best way for everyone to get in touch? Well, I don't know how much I've got to contribute nowadays, but I mean, I still, <laughs> I still have my denim consultancy agency, um, oh, cool. which is uh, bluemagicdenim.com. Yeah. Um, so I'm Terry at bluemagicdenim.com. Cool. Okay. And is that, I don't know much about the consultancy. So you tell us a little bit about that. How does that operate? Are you are you quite limited with who you're working with? How does it work? Absolutely, and uh, I mean to be quite honest, that I pretty much, um, you know, I've been in in lockdown now for a, I would say about eight, I suppose two months really now. Yeah. Um, but it it was just something that when I when I um, left Superdry. Um, about three and a half years ago, it must be now. Um, yeah, we formed I formed Blue Magic Denim as a, a consult consultancy uh, for sourcing and development of denim. Uh, you know, to help denim brands. Cool. Yeah. Forgive me there. I wasn't. I wasn't all that um, eloquent. I think I've been in lockdown for too long. <laughs> too many months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's good. That's really good. That's really good. Well. Again, Terry, it's always a treat, always a treat to talk to you. And I hope you've imported, well, you certainly have. You've supplied lots and lots of really good, good advice, good knowledge of wisdom. And um, yeah, I think it's been a great call and I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks very much for your time. And um, yeah, keep busy and uh, it'd be great to catch up with you soon. We'll have a beer and um, we can talk more. But um, I really appreciate your time. It's always good to talk to you. uh, Good man. Good man. All the best, Terry. Thanks again. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. So that was my chat with Terry Fraser. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you got some uh, some useful information from it. And if you did enjoy the show, actually, could you do me a massive favour? Could you leave a review 
Um, it makes a big difference to the show because um, the platforms obviously generate more exposure to more people on the back of people interacting with the shows themselves. So that would be amazing if you could do that. Also, don't forget to head over to the Facebook page. We've got a Behind the Brands Facebook page. And what I've done on there, I've added some pictures of Blood and Glitter, the actual product. So you can see what Terry was talking about and his brand from back in the day. Um, there's also a really nice picture on there with Terry with his idol, Nigel Caborn. Um, which you should check out because it's a great shot. Um, and that's it. So for now, I will be leaving you. I just want to give you a quick update of what's happening in the next episode. The next episode is with Susanna Davda. And Susanna has got a great business. She basically mentors aspiring shoe designers and puts them in good stead to create amazing, fabulous footwear brands. So if footwear is your thing and you want to find out a little bit more about that process, join us for episode three. Until then, see ya. Behind the Brands was brought to you in association with beforestores.com. Go check it out. You can discover new brands, meet the makers and their products before they go into stores. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. We'd really appreciate your feedback. You can also subscribe for future episodes by tapping the follow button wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, Keep learning, keep listening, and keep creative.